Harwood. Um, so I've done a little bit of digging around and I've discovered. Ricky Grove. Fog comes in on little cat feet. <laughs> Phil Rice. This is the best film that I've seen all year and maybe ever. Damien Valentine. Use the machinima, Luke. Welcome to And Now for Something Completely Machinima, the podcast about machinima, virtual production, and other related technologies. I'm here with my co-hosts, Tracy Harwood and Damian Valentine. Hello. Hello. Ricky is away. He's ice fishing in Manitoba, uh, but should be back with us in a couple weeks. Um, so this, uh, this week, we've got you know, last year we kind of adjusted the structure of the show uh, and put a lot more of the news burden on the blog and subsequently we're giving less attention to it here. And now we're kind of, as we enter 2024 here, we're kind of thinking of some ways to we feel like maybe the balance needs to correct the other direction now. We want to incorporate a little bit more news. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the world of machinima particularly in AI. What a year 2023 was for AI. Just insane. Um, especially with regard to, you know, creative production, AI-generated video and audio and images and and then all the stuff that's happening with virtual production. iClone has released a whole bunch of new tools and Unreal continues to kind of dominate that space. Unity kind of had its slip in the puddle kind of moment and still maybe writing itself. So it's some interesting stuff. Tracy, why don't you kind of lead us off with uh, what, what's what's on our minds news-wise uh, this week? Yeah, sure. Well, okay, so I want to start with something that um, I think is majorly important and massively significant as we as we move forward now with, with Machina because it's, I think what we've done over the last couple of years is demonstrated that the ground has been return to the machinima community well and truly. Um, so the thing that I want to um, highlight this week and was super interested to see um, was that another machinima film has won a major film festival award this um, last year. Um, and it was um, it was one that was made in Red Dead Redemption 2 and it was called Hardly Working. It, was, um, it won an award, I think, in December time. Um, the, the film was by an Aus Austrian collective called Total Refusal, um, and it won European Film Festival's Best Short. Um, mm. And for those that were at the Milan Machinima Festival last year, it was also actually featured there earlier in, that, in the year too. So this is, this is about last year, but that whole year was pretty significant i think it's worth mentioning how that festival works the european film festival because it then gives you a sense of the achievement um, for this basically the category european short film is organized by the european film academy uh, in cooperation with a series of film festivals across europe where independent juries present the films in candidacy for the award uh, and last year there were 29 um films from which these participating festivals nominated five films 
And then something like four and a half thousand members of the European Film Academy voted for the overall winner, which was hardly working. Um, so I think that makes this pretty notable. However, that was in competition against both live action films and animation films, which which I think, you know, it was the only machinima in its category Um which I think makes this absolutely significant. Um, you know, the fact that it's won such a major award uh, and in the way that it has done through the through the European Film Academy, I think is amazing. Um, and I think it's significant too, because this particular festival is one at which um, there are automatic nominations for the main Film Academy Awards. Although this particular category isn't one of them, unfortunately. Um, so I wanted to say many congratulations to Total Refusal for this achievement with with a machinima film, the first one that I think has won at a major uh, film festival. Um, let's put that into context then, as I think um, actually last year was particularly exciting for machinima's broader recognition among professional communities. If you recall, um, we mentioned Sam Crane's live production of Hamlet in GTA 5, which won a stage award for innovation in January. And then in April, I was really thrilled to have been invited to the Oberhausen International Short Film Festival for the first extensive overview of experimental machinima at a major film festival, for which we've got some reports on our channels that you can see too. So I think that whole year culminating in what Hardly Working has achieved um, really demonstrates that machinima is a force to be reckoned with among the widest communities of practice. And, and basically that's how many years after we said that that would be the case. I mean, donkey's years. So I think that's really, that's really important, really significant and definitely something that I wanted to highlight. Um, do you want me to go on? I've got another bit of news as well. I just wanted to, can you think of any other instance where a machinima film went up against no live action and and even traditional animation and and uh, i mean that's just that's really that's amazing yeah um you know it's 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 i think it's quite a tip of the hat to to the filmmakers that that they achieved a, a quality that could get it past that point but it's also very interesting in terms of how attitudes maybe have started to shift. I think they've been shifting for a while. Yeah. You probably have a better finger on the pulse on this than I would. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I reflect on stories of old, if you will, where there were attempts to uh, enter. I think famously didn't some of the, the machinima people try to enter their film at Tribeca or something along those lines. It was a pretty high profile festival yeah. and they basically got laughed out of the room. The whole thing was very insulting and, and demeaning and discouraging. Um, and, you know, just to, so it's, I don't know, part of me is, I uh, is gratified and grateful to, to hear. And it just makes me wonder what the dynamics are behind that. Is it that, you know, this is a new generation of decision makers now than it was then. This is, you it know, is. that happened in what, 2005? Exactly. So have the yeah. people that make the call on that, they've aged out. And now the people that were kids then are making those decisions. So I maybe it's as simple as that. 
I think um, so, but, but I think there's something shifting. else here too, which is yeah. the rise of the avant-garde film. Uh, uh, again, uh, I mean, Ricky would probably be able to tell us a little bit more about that whole kind of avant-garde genre. Um, but it's something that we see quite a lot of media artists now using, you know, found content using games for their creative work. And I think really what you've got here is an is an example of a a group of, you know, uh, avant-garde film filmmakers using a game um, and and exploring it in a kind of interesting and and innovative way. And I, but I would say that really they're probably not necessarily calling it machinima as such, but just avant-garde film. I would say that the other thing that probably helps is the graphical quality of the games now is Absolutely. a lot higher than it was in two thousand and five. I mean. Um, this is a Red Dead Redemption film. That looks stunning. You could put it up against any um, modern animated show or film, and it would be comparable. Uh, comparable. But in two thousand and five, you put up I don't know, something made with Quake Three um, against uh, something that Pixar was doing. Uh, visually, it's not going to stand a chance against it. Um, and I think, even though in theory you should be looking at more than just the visuals there's that element of people can't necessarily get away from just looking at the way it, something looks. Yeah. And I don't mean to demean anyone who made anything in 2005. It's just uh, what games are capable of then is very different from what they're capable of now. Um, yeah. Yeah. You think <laughs> just a little yeah. bit. Um, yeah. And it's so also quite helps. interesting to, to your point there and Damien, it's also quite interesting that m many of the other festivals that I've been at where, Machinima is shown, like Oberhausen, and and also Sam Crane's work as well, made in GTA Five, hmm. um, and that has been and still is a game of choice for the avant-garde filmmaker, um, which is a shame, really, because you know there are a lot of other beautiful games that can be used for, uh, you know, for creating really interesting Machinima works, of which Red Dead Redemption is a great example. Um, Why do you think GTA is 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 finding more success in that regard? Is it because it closely yes. imitates a real environment? So it's I think that maybe the the ability to use it, let's say, for social commentary, it just comes much more naturally when it's people in a city, you know. And some games are are more fanciful or maybe sci-fi or whatever. And, and GTA, if you, if you don't pay too close an attention to what the actual objectives of the game are, which are pretty fanciful and pretty horrific sometimes, but if you just look at it as a city simulator, um, yeah. then for making, let's say topics that are, that tend to be favorites among short film fest you know short filmmakers and you know the sundance type picks and stuff it's it's a, a lot of it seems to be about social issues exactly uh, and stances and stuff so i wonder if gta is just yeah better suited for that it's it's a little hard to to make a commentary that feels modern on a modern social issue set in the old west or set in the the you know in in a spaceship in starfield or something so yeah. maybe that's why GTA is so appealing. 
yeah i think yeah i think that's true i think um Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. i don't see them i don't see them moving away from it anytime soon to be honest although i do see a trend you know more towards the use of unreal um and you know the creation of of assets and story worlds um that the artists themselves then can put more more attention and more detail into so that that would be my you know the, my my thought on what the trajectory of it is so it's not probably going to move towards these you know more more and more traditional machinima approaches but more towards more virtual production approaches Right. um would be would be my guess but i don't see us coming out of the gta uh movement anytime soon because if you know if six comes out when's that coming out early next year mid next year Yeah, i don't probably know in about probably in about 12 months. yeah Probably. okay well when that I comes think they out would love to have it done by the holiday season next year, but that seems that seems a little tight, but it'll be soon yeah before well we know i would it. imagine that'll be the perfect next step for some of these some of these creators but Yeah. nonetheless I, you know the the achievement of this film is most definitely noteworthy in the trajectory and the recognition of machinima in its own right and the way that it was made is absolutely noteworthy and really impressive and, and like i said many many congratulations to these guys for um for their success well deserved Absolutely. Yeah, shall i congratulations. go on Yeah, another let's move one on. then another bit of news um Again, very interested to see this one. This is Amazon announcing that it would be making Warhammer 40K shows and movies um, with the platform apparently to have the exclusive rights to make content based on the Games Workshop brand. Now, I was really interested in that particular statement, um, actually, because we reviewed um, a few very successful fan-made machinimas using the game recently, and I wonder... what it will mean for those creators in the game that have quite substantial following, including from the game itself. I think I'm thinking um, the folks that created Astartes, which we reviewed a few months back, if you recall, um, and which is actually featured on the Warhammer community website. Uh, but of course, the focus, at least at the moment with the Amazon deal, is for film and TV projects. Uh, and as I understand it, the details of what the first production will be is still to be thrashed out. So I guess it's something we'll be keeping tabs on over the uh, the coming months. But why I'm interested in this isn't just because it's happening. It's also because Games Workshop has a connection also to Lord of the Rings um, with its um, strategy game. And I picked up the very same day that I picked up on that story, the other story, the Warhammer story, um, that Amazon um, also... Um, sorry, that um, that 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 a, a fan fiction writer for Lord of the Rings had been um, successfully sued for publishing a book sequel um, by it um, uh, um, by the by the Tolkien estate and by Amazon as well. Um, now it's actually a little more complex than it sounds because it would appear that the fan fiction writer had actually tried to sue Tolkien and. Uh, and Amazon for a prequel to The Lord of the Rings, which they released on Amazon in 2022, um, in which he kind of basically claimed that they had infringed his copyright. So I think what this is coming down to is who is authorised to commercialise a fan fiction work? And of course, where the big bucks are involved, um, such as uh, in this case with 
Warner Brothers um, also being involved here and Amazon, then a fan is unlikely to be um, successful. Now, it's not transformative work like like machinima might be, um, of course, but I do think the issue of copyright protection and the convergence of different media platforms for streaming content and the conflation of films and games and also the increasing professional filmmaking community's recognition of machinima, such as when we were talking about the, um, the film festival award there. Um, I think this is going to put increasing pressure on the legal system to actually formally recognise the important role the machinima creators have in the creative ecosystem across the world. Quite frankly, I, I do not accept, and I'll say that again, I do not accept um, the conclusion that has been reached by quite a lot of folks um, that uh, takedowns uh, of some creators uh, that, have, you know, the, the, these big production channels have, have um, forced people to take content offline. Um, I, th I don't think that's I don't think that's correct. I don't think it should happen, especially um, because the success um, of the games themselves is due to the success of the Internet. Uh, and that is fundamentally built on the creative endeavor of fan communities with whom all of these platform channels have benefited over the years. I think it's incomprehensible that they seek to cook the goose that lays the golden eggs. And it's high time, in my view, that this whole ecosystem was fully exposed and that fan rights as creative contributors, as advertisers and as commercial assets for these various stakeholders are established with a more solid foundation. I'll put you some links um, when this uh, goes up on our um, website so you can see the kind of things that I'm talking about. I don't know if you guys have got any comments on that uh, i know yeah, so, you've got more experience of it than i have in terms of actual content at being out there okay so obviously i'm no means a legal expert in any of this but obviously with that's the empire and making star wars fan films the whole fan fiction um, side of things is something i'm quite familiar with uh i think this guy who made the the lord of the rings fan fiction nothing wrong with that his mistake was trying to sell it because he does not have permission to do that if he just written his fan fiction and posted it online for people to read, there would have been no problems at all. But his mistake was selling it and then attacking Amazon, who have a, who do actually have permission from the Tolkien estate to create their TV show, and suing them for it. And obviously that really backfired badly on this guy. Um, I have no idea why he thought that was a good idea, because most people I know who write fan fiction or make fan films know that they are playing with someone else's um franchise and um some of these franchise owners are very um restrictive of what they want fans to do and fortunately luckily with star wars george lucas has always said he wants fans to be creative as long as they don't make any money um and when he sold star wars to disney that was part of the contract because disney's is on the they don't really like fans creating stuff but he insisted it was part of the contract and they have to honor that and so um you know that's something that's continued on um i don't know too much about what the tolkien estate views on fan fiction i'm sure there's plenty of lord of the rings fan fiction out there and there's a lot there's a couple of very impressive live action uh lord of the rings fan films that are free to watch and they've not been taken down because mm. you know they've just been put up there for free and 
but visual quality on these these match the actual Peter Jackson films. They, they've gone. The, the costumes look just as good. The, the effects work. They've run into the orcs and the makeup. They look just like the ones in the films. Really well acted, uh, and they're not taken down. But you know, he tried to to make. To, he wrote the story. I I haven't read it, so I don't know if it's good or not. So I'm not going to judge it on that. But he should not have tried to to sell it without permission of the Tolkien estate. And my understanding is they probably would not have given him permission to sell the story because as far as they're concerned, they have J.R.R. Tolkien's work and Christopher Tolkien has taken them uh, when he was still around because he's now passed away. He took some of his father's notes and completed some of those books. Those are the only things that they will publish them uh, actually have published. And then you get the adaptations of um, like the Peter Jackson films and the the Amazon TV show, which um, is sort of based on the Silmarillion, but not quite, but it's still it's still all part of it. Um, so you know, I don't know about that. Um, but yeah, he should not have done that because you know he doesn't have any control over the, the Tolkien uh, license. Um, what kind of what kind of sale did he attempt to do, Damien? Do you know? I believe he tried self-publishing it through Amazon, and so you could. You know, authors can self-publish books through Amazon and they just get printed on demand. I believe that's what he tried to do. No, he, pub- he had a publisher and he published, he printed and published oh. through the publisher. So, and okay. it was on a, on a wide-scale distribution. Well, the, uh, the publisher would have been thinking, well, we shouldn't do that without contacting the, the Tolkien estate because you'd think they would be aware of copyright and stuff like that, given that that's what they do. Copyright in terms of what exactly? Because he was extending the story. Yeah, but it's to do with the the um, IP um, uh, ownership. So if he'd written a story that, if he'd wrote the story, every story he wrote, but didn't place it in the Middle Earth world, made his own world up, I think that would have been completely fine. He could do whatever he likes with it. But because he based it on an existing world that the Tolkien estate owns, that is where the problem lies. So even though he's telling a different story in that world, he doesn't own the world that it's in. So Mm. um, if I made a Star Wars fan film that had nothing to do with any of the movie characters, but you still had lightsabers and, um, you know... The Force. Yeah, stuff like that. Something Uh, identifiable. Yeah. Yeah, and and then I tried to sell that. Um, Disney would not be very happy with me for that, and I imagine I would be getting some very angry letters from their lawyers. But if I made a story that, well, obviously I like Star Wars and it's going to influence my writing, but it had nothing to do with Star Wars at all, no Force, no lightsabers, um, just a space story that had similar kind of adventure tones that star wars has they wouldn't care um because i've created my own world to do it in uh so it's this whole intellectual property ownership which is also part of the copyright no i think it's not it's not about that i think it's about the commercialization bit they're frightened to death somebody else is going to make some money Hmm. but they're missing the point that's what i wanted to dig into just a little bit damien and and so i don't I don't I don't want you or need you to tell us if you do monetize on YouTube for Heir to the Empire, but can you tell me would you be permitted to do so? Um 
There are plenty of Star Wars content creators who do monetize their videos. Okay, that's a good way to answer that. And yeah. and they would fall in the fan fiction category. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. there's some people who just do like the talking head commentary. Uh, guess, yeah, that's different to me. And yeah, then there are people who uh, do sort of animations and stuff. Um, not necessarily to tell a story, but just to to you know make a space battle because they want to. Um, right. Uh, things like that. Um, uh, so they, there are people out there who do monetize their videos. I don't know what arrangements they've got with Disney and Lucasfilm. Um, I know that there are people out there who put Star Wars music in their stuff, and obviously that gets. Uh, yeah, music's a whole nother ball of wax. Yeah, because yeah, I'm just that... it's it's one of those things where like okay, so the estate objected to, let's say whatever level of publishing deal hmm. that he did, where a product is being created and then purchased by consumers. And so there's that. Okay. So they object to that. I still would have questions as to why, why do you object to that? Yep. And and this isn't even about the law. It's just, let's talk just in common law terms here. How does that hurt you? How does that take away from your income him selling that? But let's, let's just say, okay, so that's a thing, but Commercial use, of course, is much broader than creating a physical product and selling it to people. It's also, Damien, if you were to flip the button and turn on monetize on one of your Star Wars videos, by the same uh, legal thinking, they would have legit reason to protest you doing that as well and take action against you for it. And to me, those things are in such different different categories, you know, yeah. of commercial use. And yet it's all lumped in there. And I've had people as that. leave comments saying they like my work. They've been inspired to go out and buy the book because they want to know how it finishes. Oh, that happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and I had one the other day saying he bought the whole trilogy of books, liked them so much. He's just bought all of the Star Wars books from the whole expanded universe. Yeah. And he's been going through, like, he's read about 30 of them just from watching my video um, or one of my videos. And um, I, I didn't Yeah, I'm just wondering, that, like, yeah. was there some precedent legally that I don't know about that? You know, someone, some third party came along and created a fan fiction that ended up eclipsing or overriding the original IP. Some obscure thing. You know, obviously that didn't happen to Star Wars. It didn't happen to, uh, you know, Frank Herbert and Dune. Nothing like that's happened. But did something like that happen and that's the precedent? Or is this just a matter of... There was... Is it just institutionalized greed you know I, just... I tend to i tend to go with what you're talking about there phil yeah but, but like i said there's now this is now be, because of what i you know started out this particular episode talking about you know the fact that major film festivals are now recognizing machinima and you know we're talking here about red dead redemption 2 rockstar does not have the best name for um assigning copyright to works of fan fiction, which right. arguably that is. But on top of that, you know, when we went to, when I went to Oberhausen, what you'd got there is works being shown, being bought by galleries and showcased um, in, you know, in multiple different ways within gallery environments, but being paid for to do that. Yeah. That was, 
You know, that's a whole different thing that has not yet been exposed. Now we've got games that are mixing with film world, same sort of thing. We've got this convergence of different platforms. We've got big production companies coming in, creating all sorts of content, uh, you know, through these kind of commercial deals with the the game engines. We're in a different time now, but I think it's high. You got time. generative, you got generative AI peeling stuff from all of that. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And then and then there's the question being currently wrestled with of is any of that commercially viable at that absolutely, point? Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, there's it's boy, it is a uh I think it's high it's time. It's not a simple thing. <laughs> no, I don't think it I don't think it is, but I think it's high time that the actual the you know the because because the indies have always been exploited in this in this way but i think it's more than high time that the the legal system did actually start to recognize the role of the creative indies in this ecosystem which is churning out you know uh, dollars for lots of stakeholders yeah some of whom can co commercialize that but many of whom get diddly squat for the effort and yet their work is then exploited in you know new expansion packs or new uh you know new new character lines in in games uh, as they you know release whatever they whatever whatever it is they release i think it's high time this was uh formally accepted and formally recognized and supported there is um, a case happening that you might want to keep an eye on tracy it's actually about star trek um, yes. So there's, a, I think it's around the time that Star Trek Into Darkness, as J.J. Abrams movie was released, um, there was a Star Trek fan film. I think it's a Kickstarter to make a fan film, and they they released like a twenty minute video that they'd already made, and they'd got some of the Star Trek actors in it, and they're, they're telling a story, so a prequel to the original series of Star Trek, and. It, the, the, the very impressive production values you think it is you think it was a, an official production um and they raised over a million dollars to make the full story that they were talking about and paramount started looking into it and they decided that this was uh, an acceptable amount of money being raised for a, a fan film because why do they need a million or over a million dollars to yeah. to make this um and so there was a big legal case, and eventually the the, the settlement was um, they could finish what they'd started, but they couldn't use any of the official Star Trek actors, um, and they had a certain time frame to finish it, and that was all agreed. And then Paramount released a set of guidelines for fan filmmakers to follow. Uh, they're very restrictive. Like you can only make a fifteen-minute video. You can't use any Star Trek actors. Your budget has got to be below a certain amount. Um, and once you've made your video, you can't make anything else. You can only make one, or I think maybe you can make two. I think if you're doing a two-part story, then it can be fifteen minutes each. But once you finish your project, you can't make another one. It's just um, monstrous, man. It's, it's just monstrous. Uh, unacceptable. I agree, but it's kind of gone. It's, it's still going on now because the Axanar fan film has not been finished. Mm -hmm. So Paramount is now suing those fan filmmakers for breaching the agreement because they've not actually finished the project, which has been going on for about, they should have finished it by now. It's been about eight years since the whole thing um, kicked off. Um, and to be honest, a lot of Star Trek 
creators are on Paramount's side because if Axnar hadn't done this thing and raised so much money, Paramount wouldn't have cared and wouldn't have enforced these restrictions on people. So mm -hmm. the fan filmmakers actually want Paramount to win this one because they blame the Axanar team for having these very tight restrictions forced on them. Wow. Uh, and that's still going on now. So it's a mess mm -hmm. and I don't know how it's going to end, but it might be one to keep an eye on because that yeah. could set a uh, precedent for future. I think it's high time there was a bit more um, open debate about this, but I think it's coming because I think, like I said, I think I feel we're in a bit of a perfect storm for this. And I've got another example of it, actually. Do you want me to go go on? I'll carry on. Yeah. All right. So, so, the, so the final bit of news that I picked up on this month was from 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 my side of things anyway was the the you remember last month we were talking about the cyberpunk movie trailer mm -hmm. um and the and we also discussed the kind of ultimate edition release well i create I, I came across an official booklet for the ultimate edition called a booklet for the ultimate edition now what fascinated me about this was actually that it was called a booklet <laughs> not not guidelines or a zine or a handbook or an annual or whatever you call the how-tos, but something else. And it's a when you look at it, it's a kind of a halfway house between this kind of collectible annual. And yes, it's digital, but I understand that there are also um, print versions of this available. Um, so it's a kind of a halfway house between that and also a fan fiction zine, a promotional of, of some sort. It's also a set of guidelines, all kind of rolled into one. Um, and it includes lots of little known or cared about facts, tips and hints, such as, for example, the in-game car radio uh, actually has stations on it. Can you believe um, it's also massive? It's 170 odd pages. And it got me wondering, is this a thing now? Do other games do this? I have absolutely no idea. I couldn't really find any other examples of it. We talked a little bit about Elden Ring and just what uh, an, uh, you know, a set of guidelines might look for that. And it's kind of incomprehensible that they would even attempt it. Um, so it kind of, it kind of made me wonder who on earth is this aimed at? Is it maybe for storytellers? Because actually, as I was flicking through it, um, bearing in mind that, um, you know, this, this, uh, you know, there's these new, these new tools are going to be released um, shortly. Um, so I was flicking through it. There's all this stuff about the game law, uh, all the backstories in there that you probably wouldn't even find in the gameplay. And, of course, reflecting on these mod tools that are, are coming out for this. Is it therefore an attempt to try and um, claim the story world um, through through which perhaps they might then be able to keep tabs on it in some way? I don't know. There were there were a couple of things that I noticed actually when I was looking through it. And firstly, there wasn't a single mention of the word machinima anywhere in it, which I thought was strange. Um, and strange because the anticipated role of the expansion of the life of this game is clearly um through people creating their own stories using this tool set. Um and there's you know stack loads of content that have been created using the the cyberpunk world so i was kind of fascinated that that term specifically wasn't mentioned um and in about page 83 about halfway through it there is explicit mention of these new projects and these new projects are actually 
films being made with the cyberpunk world. So there you go. There's another example of this kind of conflation of games and film and other mm -hmm. media formats weaving around content creators specifically. And presumably, since this one doesn't actually um, have really an established story world, not, not in the same way that Lord of the Rings does, um, it's clearly one that's going to be directly benefiting from what the fan communities uh, do with it. Um, so there you go. I'm I'm building a case here. I hope there are people that can pick it up. I just had a quick flick through it as you were talking, and it looks like it's going to be a very intriguing read mm. for it because mm. a lot of it is sort of in-world lore and it talks about the characters, but then it also talks about um, like the behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, mm. like and you were saying about the, the additional content, like the, the comics and the, the anime. There's a, a Netflix anime series which I still need to watch because. Uh, uh, it sounds like it's going to be quite good. Um, mm. So, yeah, I'm quite intrigued by what they... The, the Ultimate Edition and the Phantom Liberty expansion is they've wrapped up that game, but they're obviously going to make more in this world because they've built it all up and you they've put a lot of effort into um, building Night City and developing all the lore around it and all the characters and all the backstory and things that just get mentioned, but you know that there's obviously more happening that doesn't necessarily have a place in the game, but you want to learn more about it. So they're going to expand this a lot. And mm. I think this is a part of that. And it'd be interesting to see how they do embrace fan content because, you know, we all it's know part of it, get, isn't it? Yeah, it's, all, it's clearly part of it. Yeah. We all know that fans are very creative. Actually, when um, the game was in development, they actually had a contest where it was a photography contest and they wanted people to find places that would look like they were in Night City and take photos of them and submit them in. Uh, mm -hmm. um, I did try it and I didn't get anywhere because people went to places like Hong Kong where, you know, all the, the <laughs> yeah. neon lights and everything. You're not going to be able to compete with that when you all you've got is Bath and Bristol to go yeah, to. Yeah, quite. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is actually a funny story behind that. I was, I found near the shopping centre, there's this road that goes down the hill and there's some steps. It looks, the step, where the steps are, it's really run down, it's filthy, there's broken windows. And I was taking a picture of this and this guy come up, came up to me with an orange jacket. I think he was um, one of the street cleaners or something. And he looked really concerned that I was taking pictures of this trash stairwell rather than any of the nice stuff on the other side of the road. <laughs> and I had to explain to him it's for a photography contest. And he still looked very confused. Yeah, uh, but he, he left me alone. <laughs> so you haven't you haven't seen the uh, cyberpunk anime series on Netflix, Damien? No, I've seen the trailer and it looks really good. But it came out. I finished the game, and I didn't want to go back into that world just yet. So I'm replaying it now. So I think maybe now's the time to go back and watch it. Yeah, it's it's brutal. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> It's very hard R rating. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's quite it's intense. I'll be interested to to hear what you think of it when you watch it. It's it's you kind of have a haunted look on your face when you're it's not PG thirteen at all. Yeah. It's it's okay. hard R. Yeah, I was not expecting that. Kind of um, matches the tone for the game though. Yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah. So uh Damien, why don't you uh thank you for the uh the news stuff, uh, Tracy. I appreciate it. It's good, good stuff to be thinking about as we uh, approach things this year. Damon, you have a pick for us uh, this week. Yeah, tell us about um, it. The uh, 
get that up. It was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's called the Cinematic Experience GTA Five Machinima, and um, I was trying to find something different from anything I've brought up for a while, and I came across this, and um, it's by someone called Syed. I believe that's how you pronounce it. S Y E D. That's the name of his channel, and it's kind of. It's like a, what it made me think of was those travel adverts where they're trying to um, make they make a video of a place and they're trying to encourage you to go there as a tourist to explore it. And a lot of it is like that. And you, you're kind of getting a taste of life in GTA 5. And of course, GTA 5 is a crime game, so you get lots of people running around with guns, which is perhaps not going to attract tourists, but you know, you know, you never know. But a lot of it is just showing off the city. Like There's a thing with a plane flying through the valley and uh, people talking and um just, just kind of living their lives it's not it's not actually um telling a story of the game it's just kind of showing off uh you know the city that it takes place in and i, I was kind of intrigued by this as a, a video and i thought i'd make it my pick for this month so what do you guys think i, I yeah. really enjoyed it do you want me to go i with? did too go ahead tracy okay well all right um well from my take on it it seems to be a really I, I mean, I, it, it's a reflection of the character, or, or to me, what it was, was a refle reflection of the character that you see at the start. You know, this guy is sort of standing on top of a mountain, just looking out over the valley. And then you switch to all the this, this sort of um, city goings on, if you like. Um, and I, I read that as him just sort of standing there, reflect reflecting on some of his experiences of being in this kind of game world. Um, from things like the, the the little things that he's kind of observed and remembered, and then the random connections that he's made between, um, uh, you know, people, objects, and events, if you like. Things like, for example, the way that um, a bird flies um, and other flying things. Um, so, you know, he goes from the bird soaring over these mountains to the plane going up the valley, and that's a really interesting kind of, a switch that he makes there and then he does it in several other places you know so he's so there's characters running um and it's it's the the movement of the of the jogging that he's kind of focusing on and then he switches from that to these sort of speeding cyclists racing by you know sort of up on their pedals sort of giving it some as they're going past and it and i, I think that's a really interesting sort of set of connected observations that he's making about things that are kind of not connected basically when when you know because we don't have that experience in the game so i think it's all about the creator's experience of it mm -hmm. um he actually says in his introduction to it is that it's an edit special to them and i think that's i think i think that's just what it is it's special to him and but but not that you can't connect to it because actually i think it's really quite cathartic to watch it um and I think, I think it's cathartic because it is these beautiful edits that he's done. These are these are kind of like sweeping camera angles, and and the way that he kind of, you know, switches between the shots. I think is just really quite masterful. Um, but it's what creates the mood in it that I think is. I think that's I think that's the thing that drives it. It's actually the music. Um, that drives you through it because there's no sound at all from the from the from the game 
side of it. There's no, there's nothing that you hear that's to do as 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 I can recall of it. Um, that's actually to do with what's going on in the game. There's no sound at all, other than this beautiful, serene music. And it's that music that's called A Road Less Travelled. It's by Fringe Element. Uh, and as I understand it, these are guys that create music um, for films. And this particular piece, they describe as an emotional piano track, which was originally released in um, 2016, and it was composed by... Liesl Moore, and I'll mention that because to me, that's what this is. It's a, it's visuals to a beautiful piece of music, um, which evokes this kind of epic journey, and the cinematic really is a is a is a is a great company accompaniment to that to that music. Um, and it doesn't really tell a story for me um, beyond that kind of personal experience. Um, we've looked a few at a few of these kind of mood machinimas. Over over last year, we we picked out quite a few of them, I think. Um, but I think, as ever, when when we look at those, I think the thing that we pick up on is the, the stunning detail in the game. And this is no different. You know, the characters, the way they live their lives, uh, all in this kind of complex world. The scenery and the animations. Um, it's a, it's an amazing game, I think. GTA. Yeah, that's my comments. Yeah, we 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 do have uh, we've got several films that we've looked at over the years that that that's a highlight of our experience with them is that they're really demonstrating just how beautiful that game is. You know, um, No Man's Sky comes to mind, Red Dead Redemption several times, several other GTA five films. Uh, this one, what jumped out to me in that regard was how important the edit and the and particularly the shot selection is to conveying that beauty in the game because these are not scenes that you could effortless effortlessly take in just playing the game they are very carefully selected and chosen shots and then sequenced in an emotional way and like you said tied into that music so uh some really really nice craft that goes on here. And yes, the game bolsters it by being beautiful, but you know, in the same sense that, you know, Brad Pitt is a beautiful human, right? But with a really good photographer, it's like, whoa, really, really beautiful. You know, it's that kind of thing that, you know, he could also look like a complete bum, you know, with, <laughs> with, you know, with a badly, you know, aimed GoPro or something. So, and yeah, so the, the, the person, the eye of the camera that, that was at work in this film is, uh, is a big contribution there. It does help to have a beautiful landscape and a, a beautiful game to generate the scenery in such rich detail, but yeah, wonderfully selected shots. Like there's not, there's not a one that doesn't fit mm -hmm. with one caveat. <laughs> uh way 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 too much shaky cam mm -hmm. uh, whatever that effect is and i can't remember from dealing with i think that the gta 5 like the rockstar editor i think that it has a shaky cam you can apply in game but there's also filters you could apply in post-production you know in after effects or in uh uh, uh davinci resolve 
that do a shaky cam. Whatever this was, uh, is too much. Too much. Like, it just... I think the number of... If you go back and count, like, the number of shots that had that effect applied, maybe one in ten of those should have had it. Mm-hmm. Like, it was that that much too much. Just way too much. Uh, and I don't know what the intent is behind it. And he's not the only filmmaker... He or she is not the only filmmaker doing that. It's It's... You know, uh, I mean, in 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 actual cinematography and live action, you know, there's camera movement is something that it made its way into TV really big in like the the early 90s. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the American television show called NYPD Blue. Oh, yeah. It was basically this police uh, television police drama and very, you know, noteworthy for it was doing some just. The camera never sat still, right? Now there's a name for that technique. I don't know what it is. Any camera operator that's professional would know it. But it's it's a technique. But what was magical about it is that it looked accidental. Like it looked like just somebody just wasn't very steady with the camera. You talk to any professional camera operator? No, no, no. It's not accidental. It's it's executed. It's a technique. Um, and it's done with a, a skill when it's done with skill, it doesn't make the viewer nauseous, you know, now, probably the first time people watched NYPD blue, actually people wrote in to the television network that produced the show complaining about it. You know, what the hell's wrong with you people making this, you know, it's just, I got sick, you know, <laughs> there's always going to be people who are that, that way, but now it's just, it's just a fact of life. Like, other than your your occasionally you'll still see a typical three camera sitcom, you know, where the cameras are pretty stationary for the most part and that's it. But most films and most TV, they work some camera movement into it. Well, this this is an algorithm. This camera motion is not someone executing a technique. It is an algorithm to just jiggle the camera around with very little randomness to it, like not enough randomness. I don't know how it works within, I don't think GTA 5 gives you much control over that part at all. It's just, do you want it or not? If you do it in, in DaVinci Resolve, you can you can control a lot of how random it is and also how blended it is. So it's not, so it doesn't feel like a pattern. That's that's what's coming through in this. And it it, it is, it's very jarring and i don't know if it it if it would be that way for for someone who's not a filmmaker maybe not so much it might just be generally not as pleasant to film as you think it should be but you don't know why this is why this is why too much of that just too much so uh i think that for certain shots um certain shots that feel like Okay, this would have been a handheld camera operator filming this, you know, moving behind a guy running or something. Okay, some motion there makes sense. Because if you keep the camera just just dollying straight and then it then it feels it reminds you, okay, this is this is synthetic, this is animation, this is a video game or whatever, it's not real. So I get it. You use it for that, but not just 
because uh, there's a bird flying. So, well, let's just do this. It just, wow. So I realize now I'm, I'm feeling bad because I've spent more time talking about how much that pissed me <laughs> than I've spent talking about how beautiful the film is. But everyone looking at it knows the film's beautiful, right? It is. It's beautiful. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's really the one caveat. Really good point, Phil. Really good point, actually. It is. A little too much. It reminds me, I was watching, um, is a behind-the-scenes thing about, it's sort of an analysis video of action scenes that I saw on YouTube. I can't remember the name of the video, so I, I'm not going to try and link it now. But um, they had a scene from the movie Taken with Liam Neeson. And the scene is, he runs up to a box, jumps on the box, and there's a fence, which he jumps over and lands on the other side and then carries on running. And it's all shaky cam, and there are 18 cuts in a short sequence. And it's it's to take place over about four seconds. And they were saying this is ridiculously over the top for what he just does in that that brief moment. And it's all done just to try and make it more um exciting, but yeah. it's just too over the top. Mm -hmm. I think Doug Lyman, cuts. Doug Lyman, I think, was responsible for that pushing that editing style way too far and then things have had to correct since then. Doug Lyman is who did uh, the Bourne Identity. Yeah. Oh. Uh, actually, the second Bourne movie with Matt Damon. Not yeah. the first one, the second one. And there's this fight scene in there where it's just, I mean, if you if you pause at any point in the fight scene, it's just a blur. <laughs> yeah. The whole thing is just an unintelligible blur. Great sound design. Like you can tell, all right, somebody's getting the ass whooped, right? But you don't know who because you can't see it. I have no idea who. Let's just hope the good guy's winning because it's just a blur of weather <laughs> and motion blur and I know exactly which fight breaking you're glass. About as well. Yes. In the in the apartment, that scene. Yeah. yeah. And then then I, I remember my mom, my mom saw that movie and gave me a review. She doesn't review movies for me very often, but she says your father and I went and saw this movie and you know, she named it. She goes, I just, I found myself sitting there going, what is this? What am I, what am I even looking at? She was really <laughs> animated and upset about it. And and then I went and saw it. It's like, mom, I got to agree with you. It which, was it's just a big nauseous mess. Which, yeah, Hollywood the themselves went a little too far with it there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, so really it's more of a complaint. My complaint is about the algorithmic, repetitive, shaky cam that's built into either these games or if you're using a video editor and you don't tweak the randomizer setting, that's what it's going to be is just this pattern. And and humans are smart. Like our, our senses are very smart. We pick up on that and it just doesn't feel good. So the solution is, okay, you can't fix the filter it's going to do what it's going to do, but just don't use it too much. You know, it's got its purpose. There's not any other way to do shaky cam in video game footage. Not really. Not the real way. You know, if you try to do shaky cam with a mouse, it doesn't look like <laughs> shaky cam. It looks like somebody effing around with a mouse, you know? Yeah. So I get it. It has purpose, but just not too much. Sometimes a shot just needs to be beautiful and just, just let it be there, you know? Sometimes, okay. God forbid, you don't have to move the camera at all. That's nice, isn't it? Yeah, every once in a while. It's nice. So, anyway, great pick. Oh, glad you both enjoyed it. Yeah, and, yeah uh, definitely. I hope our listeners enjoy it as well.
Well, if you uh, agree or disagree with us or uh, have any other thoughts on any of all this uh, news and all the nonsense I was spewing about camera technique, as if I have any idea what the hell I'm talking about, let us know what you think. Talk at machinima, uh, no, talk at completelymachinima.com is the email. Um, we've probably got some other ways to reach us, but email is best. Uh, that I, I was actually, I went and visited our Discord server the other day. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's crickets in there. It's, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's always there if you want, but, uh, yeah, tr try us by email. Let us know what you think. Um, sometimes we, we end up reviewing comments from people on the air here. Uh, it's, it's great to hear what you guys think about these things. Or maybe if you made this film and you want to let us, you know, tell, tell me what an idiot I am for, uh, for picking it apart for that. Uh, we, we love to hear hear from all of you well if you're Doug so, Lyman, you want to talk about that fight scene in the, the born supremacy yeah yeah and it, it, it just oof. it looked ai generated or something it's pretty crazy yeah hands all just akimbo <laughs> so uh we miss ricky hope he's doing well with his ice fishing in manitoba and uh we will see all of you at the next episode and have a great day thank you bye bye bye